0: Welcome to Let's Talk Trade. I'm Jessica Hermosa, Communications Officer at the WTO. All around the globe, people have experienced some sort of shopping frustration due to supply chain disruptions, as you've heard in our previous episodes. For a lot of us, the delays were inconvenient, but not the end of the world. But let's keep in mind there are people, businesses and even countries who find themselves stuck firmly on the wrong side of the disruptions. This even happened against the background of surprisingly robust trade growth during the pandemic. The perspectives from those bypassed by trade routes and at risk of losing out on the promise of recovery are important. So let's talk trade.
1: Many problems we were grappling with then and now are the result of more goods moving across borders than ever before? It's worth taking a moment to remember that the issues we are working to solve are problems born of success. Without effective government policies to sustain demand and keep markets broadly open, without nimble adaptation by businesses as consumers shifted from services to durable goods, and without the heroic efforts of seafarers, truck drivers, longshore, and warehouse workers, pilots, and others to keep goods moving. The pandemic could easily have led to a prolonged collapse in growth and trade. But that is of little comfort to everyone on the wrong end of supply chain disruptions and high shipping costs, which are proving more stubbornly persistent than many of us had expected. Micro, small, and medium-sized enterprises have been hit particularly hard, given their narrower margins and more limited financial resources. Poor countries, small and vulnerable economies, and landlocked developing countries risk being pushed out of global value chains or finding it even harder to break into them.
0: That was Director General Ngozi okonjo Huela at the WTO Supply Chain Forum in March. With me to talk further about those countries and businesses on the wrong side of supply chain disruptions, I welcome a WTO colleague who is perfectly suited to explain what went wrong, and what continues to go wrong for those who are disadvantaged, and how to address the issues at stake.
2: I'm Raul Torres, and uh, I work as the head of uh, the development uh, uh, policy unit in the development division of the World Trade Organization.
0: You are dealing, among others, with strategies to integrate landlocked developing countries and small island developing states into the global trading system. How much of an impact do geography and the availability of resources have on the development prospects of countries.
2: There is a current of um, what is called geographic uh, economy or geographic development. And when you are talking about developing countries, this current of economies divide countries into four categories. One is resource-rich coastal countries, they are golden, they have a good time. The other one is landlocked resource-rich countries. Those have a problem, but it's not such a big problem because the multinationals will always be able to go in and extract their resources because cost is not so much of a problem for them. Then you have the coastal resource-poor country. They have a harder time because although their trade costs are lower, they may not have what to export. And the last category is landlocked countries that are resource poor. And those really have a hard time integrating into the world economy.
0: We've heard how smaller countries have been affected by the supply chain crisis. Can you tell us more how this has manifested in these uh, economies?
2: The impact has been very strong. I think that a lot of it is manifested through the increase of uh, trade costs uh, for these uh, countries. One of the key determinants for the inclusivity of trade is the uh, question of trade costs. There may be traders uh, that uh, if the cost of uh, doing business, their cost of trade is too high, they just may not be able to participate in trade at all because they may not be competitive or they would be priced out of being able to participate in international uh, trade. So this is something that is happening a lot for the small economies and the landlocked developing countries, and the LDCs, the least developed countries, because their traders uh, and the companies are also small and medium enterprises. And of course, they have a little bit of a price sensitivity for their business. So if it becomes very uh, expensive for them to trade, then they may not be able to participate in trade at all.
0: And during the supply chain crisis, what was the biggest factor in the increase in trade costs?
2: I think that the biggest factor has been an overall shortage or misallocation of uh, uh, some of the um, tools that are necessary for trade. With the conflict in Ukraine, we've seen a huge uh, spike in fuel uh, prices. And uh, many of these countries are very sensitive to this uh, issue of fuel prices, because uh, a lot of their trade uh, is done by trucks uh, mostly. So this is a basically the case for landlocked uh, developing countries. And also electricity becomes an issue because uh, most of them rely on diesel generators uh, for their uh, electricity. And um, if the cost of fuels are very high, the government will not be able to pay. And once you have uh, electricity costs or failures in the provision of electricity, then the whole economy is affected.
0: What about containers? We hear a lot of reports about a global container shortage.
2: Containers are vital currently for international trade. And uh, at the moment, and this is a situation that we have seen in landlocked developing countries, but also in uh, small economies, there are no containers. So the containers uh, basically are moving to the port, but they're not coming back to this country. So you have a situation where the cost of uh, renting a container is extremely high. That's been made uh, worse also by the current uh, situation with the conflict in Ukraine, because uh, it has actually closed some of the routes that some of the landlocked uh, uh, countries in Central Asia had to uh, export their uh, goods to the European market mostly. So now the land route that uh, we had to buy trucks and train from countries like Mongolia, Kazakhstan, uh, Uzbekistan. Kyrgyzstan, uh, Tajikistan, has been closed because that land route basically went through Russia and then through Belarus and then onto Europe. So now the most uh, logical available route is to go to the ports in route in China. Normally, their trade is geared to uh, either go west towards Europe by land or east uh, China and then to put it on ships. And we saw that the uh, ports in China are very congested. And uh, now with the COVID-19 related lockdowns in uh, some of the Chinese port cities, uh, that situation has been made uh, even worse.
0: And for those that depend on shipping or trading by sea, what has been the rise in costs for them?
2: Normally, when uh, people ask uh, what category of countries have the higher trade costs. Um, people intuitively say that uh, it's the landlocked uh, developing countries, and that's true. They have huge trade costs, but the ones that actually have the higher trade costs are the small island developing states. It's, uh, it's paradoxical because you know they have uh, ports and they have access to the sea, but uh, their problem is that their volume of trade is usually so small that they have very few calls uh, on their ports by the big ships. So um, that really increases their price uh, for shipping and uh, it really increases their trade costs. And now also with this uh, current situation where there are a lot of ships that are sitting idle in the ports because there's port congestion, then you may have a situation where there's even less shipping going to these countries.
0: I talked to a South African logistics entrepreneur who worries about this very risk of being priced out of the market and sidelined by the main trade arteries.
3: My name is Sebastiano Iorio. We are Cargo Compass SA. We're a South African freight forwarding customs broker logistics company head office in Johannesburg.
0: And what that means is you help traders like importers and exporters get the containers they need?
3: Absolutely. We are um, handling importations um, on behalf of importers from basics foodstuffs from Europe, Asia, and the US to uh, high-end clothing and fashion, including technology, uh, machinery, uh, solar equipment. Um, wind turbines. So we take care of the logistical requirements from worldwide uh, origin points uh, and we will bring them through to South Africa by air and ocean and arranging all the formalities of booking of the containers on vessels from overseas and then arranging the customs clearance locally um, and the final delivery to either our warehouses or to the client's warehouse.
0: What was the situation like at the peak of the COVID lockdowns in South Africa?
3: So there was a lot of congestion um, and a lot of delays. And, you know, it's a ripple effect. Once vessels um, arrive at destination and they're not attended to in a timeless manner, the vessels will back up and stock up. And vessels that carry 14,000, 15,000 containers per ship Um, You can't just distribute these containers. You need to get them delivered to the final door. And so the problem just multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. Eventually, you get your hands on the goods. But along the way, whilst we're waiting for containers to become available, shipping lines do not want to stand and wait outside the port because they are spending money on a daily basis. The shipping lines then... It started to increase uh, freight rates because the f- ships were not becoming efficient. Um, with the higher freight rates eventually discharging containers, the ships would then return back to Europe or, or Asia or the USA, be delayed once again en route. It happened frequently that just vessels were either diverted to other ports because they were needed elsewhere, South Africa is an emerging market, but it's no market compared to the 500 million people that are in Western Europe, or the almost 500 million people that are in the USA. The other markets are certainly larger and more attractive. And what's happened in reality is that the the larger vessels have moved to Europe, uh, USA, and South Africa, then we we land up with um, smaller vessels which fill up quicker, and the shipping lines can then demand higher freight rates because if you don't pay the higher rate, your cargo remains in the port. With the backlogs accumulating, the demand for imports continued. In South Africa, we're exporting a lot of basic raw materials um, and lots of uh, minerals and iron, but we are importing a lot of finished articles from foodstuffs to machinery to furnitures to pharmaceuticals, etc. Vessels coming out of Asia, Europe are full and the shipping lines are getting top prices because they've got demand and people are wrestling to get space onto a vessel to try and get the goods to the markets here in S.A.
0: Can you give us an idea of the increase before COVID compared to now, what the freight rates average would be?
3: Before COVID, a 40-foot container, which is 12 meters in length, the average cost would be in the region of $2,000. That was a basic ocean freight rate for general cargo. Today, our same container is costing $14,000 to move on the same route A slower service and nowhere near the transit time that the importers enjoyed before.
0: And are you seeing light at the end of the tunnel or do you think this will continue?
3: We've come out of two years or, or more of COVID. Myself and my colleagues were quite optimistic that we would start off the year and slowly we would see an ease off on COVID and restrictions. And I must say, it's unfortunate, but it's actually gotten worse. Smaller vessels, smaller capacity, longer transit times. We are still stuck in this wave of congestion that it's going to take time to come out. We don't think that we will see any big changes until the end of the year. If COVID reduces, if, let's say, the world turns to some sort of normality, you know, we can only hope.
0: A return to normality, however, is not the only ambition for some, particularly those who want to graduate into more lucrative trade opportunities. Raul, we've heard about developing countries' desire to move up the value chain. I suppose a healthy supply chain with more efficient connections plays a part in this graduation to higher value products?
2: Absolutely. When you talk about value chains, you're talking about uh, adding value to a product. So we're talking mostly about a product being imported from abroad, then you're adding value locally, and then you're exporting that value-added product maybe either to the final consumer or it could even be to uh, another country that is going to uh, in turn add their own value. So uh, in that sense, obviously, if you have uh, to import some of the Components or parts uh, or inputs that uh, are necessary for you to then add value onto those components uh, or parts. Having good uh, systems for importing and low trade costs for importing will help you uh, make the country more attractive also for investors to be able to locate their uh, production there and um, also. Add the value that uh, needs to be added to the product and also then move it on to the next uh, step in the value chain.
0: Cotton and textiles are a case in point. I talked about the supply chain worries and value chain aspirations of African cotton producers such as Benin, Mali, Tanzania, Burkina Faso and Chad with a cotton expert.
4: Uh, My name is Kamar Osman. I'm Head of Textile at the National Cotton Advisory Committee in Washington.
0: Can you tell us more about ICAC, what kind of work it does, or your position in textiles?
4: We are in cotton, but uh, textile is an important component. I am their first ever Head of Textiles. So I'm making a textile strategy that how we can benefit our member countries in respect of textiles, how we can improve their trade, improve their investment, how we can connect their research and development.
0: Tell us about the cotton and textile supply chains. What are the opportunities and risks for cotton-producing countries?
4: When we are talking about the supply chain, uh, so it is basically the fiber. This fiber is going to yarn. On average, we can say that whatever is the fiber price, it is two times the yarn price. I mean, the yarn is two times expensive as compared to the cotton. And then fabric is around six times more. And the garments, although there are garments which are very expensive and there are garments which are not that expensive, but when we take the averages, it is 15 times more as compared to the fiber. So every profit is moving up the value scale. So if they transform everything, if the West Africans, if they move up the value chain, they can have an additional $63 billion. If they convert all their cotton, which is available with them, the South and East Africa, if they create a textiles value chain, they can have additional $12 billion with them. It all depends on how complicated is your product. So the more complicated product, you require more persons to manufacture it. And if it is less complicated, it is just a polo shirt or simple shirt, then less employment will be generated. But on average, we normally say that uh, every ton of cotton, if it moves up the value chain, it can create four to six jobs. So if you go by this, the West Africa it can create six million additional jobs, and if we talk about South and East Africa, they can create one million additional jobs. So what we have realized and we have seen that. Uh, Unless they don't move up the value chain, they would not be able to create employment and value addition. Taking example of Africa, they are net cotton importers. The whole African subcontinent, they are exporting nearly $15 billion worth of textiles and raw materials. And then they are importing for their own consumption, $25 billion. So they are Although they are cotton producers, but unfortunately they are net textiles importers.
0: Raul, can you tell us why is the supply chain so critical to the textile industry and how important is the sector for developing economies?
2: This is a very important sector for developing economies because normally it's a low complexity sector. So many of the countries that are initiating their uh, road towards uh, industrialization start uh, with this uh, industry because uh, one of their main competitive advantage may be that they have low labor costs. And labor costs in this uh, area are a very important uh, component or a very important uh, cost factor when you are uh, producing these uh, garments, uh, etc. So that's why it's very important also to have Good uh, um, supply chains because uh, many of these countries may not be producing all of the uh, parts that go into making the finished uh, garment.
0: Here is another look at textiles, this time in Bangladesh, a least developed country that is part of the global garments industry. We heard from Rubana Huck, she is managing director at Mohamedi Group, and she
5: also spoke at the Global Supply Chains Forum. So when pandemic started in the initial month, we had uh, $3.18 billion worth of cancellation, 90% of which were reversed. Yes, our capacities have increased, we are still expanding, and we've just had a 58% growth uh, in export on a year-on-year basis in, in the last month. Bangladesh has not lost any market as such, because our exports are still on the rise. In spite of the near-shoring that's being practiced, uh, in the West, not much is being lost here, except that value addition, of course, is not there. We're still doing basics. We are still exporting around uh, $5 billion worth of just T-shirts. So, you know, that focus has to change. It's, it's not as if we're all diversifying into light engineering or anything else. We are sticking to garments pretty pretty obstinately. We are pretty self-sufficient. We are doing well. As a country, we have almost 7 to 8% GDP growth. It's not that. It's just that our particular country is overly dependent on, on ready-made garment export. And it's, it's basically without any value addition.
0: We've heard about challenges certain countries face amid supply chain disruptions. Now let's zoom into entities that serve as the backbone of economies. Raul, let's talk about micro, small, and medium-sized enterprises. Why are they so important to consider as a vital part of the global ecosystem?
2: In developing countries, they are extremely important because uh, uh, they are the biggest uh, employer. So that's uh, why it's very important to have their needs uh, in mind also when trying to put together a development strategy or, or trying to mainstream trade into the developing strategy of the country. And as I said before, a key issue here for the MISMIS to be able to participate in trade is reducing trade costs. This can be done in a variety of ways. One way that I already mentioned was to implement trade facilitation measures that are supported by the trade facilitation agreement, but also, for example, e-commerce is uh, something that uh, is really having an important effect in reducing the trade cost and increasing the uh, access to markets of uh, mismatch in developing countries.
0: How else can MSMEs be aided in their trade transactions? I talked to Sushant Rao of logistics firm Agility, who we also heard from in the previous episode.
6: From the point of view of removing friction and creating more efficiency and It's almost as if you need to lubricate the trading system to make it easier for countries or emerging markets to be in a better position to import and export goods and services. And that friction does not come only from tariffs, but it also comes from many burdensome processes, for example, in customs, many of which are still very analog or paper-based that creates so much complexity, so much paperwork, so much red tape that lentings that time from order to production to shipment. We also keep in mind that SMEs account for two-thirds of all the jobs around the world, but less than a third of the world's exports. 95% of all firms are classified as SMEs and 67% of jobs are attributed to them. And when you think about the role that SMEs play in an economy and in particular in emerging economies and the role they're going to have for job creation for wealth creation and to really be you know drivers of growth, anything you do which gets an SME better wired into the global trading system is going to be a bonus for economic growth
0: and with agility in the front line with SMEs and in emerging economies, what are your observations or what are you hearing from them in terms of their experience with the supply chain these days?
6: You can only imagine, right, um, that there's, there, there's significant differences between larger companies, whether they're um, seeking shipping services or the larger shippers themselves in terms of their access to, let's say, containers or their access to cargo capacity on aircraft. And that's all the more difficult for a smaller business. And uh, and what we hear too, is that when it comes to shipments, given these constraints in the system, it's almost as if there's a distinction in cargo between first-class cargo, business-class cargo, and economy cargo. And um, SMEs cannot afford the first or business-class cargo.
0: Okay, that makes sense. So what would be a difference between a first-class and an economy-class cargo?
6: Well, it comes down to prioritization, so which gets loaded on the uh, aircraft uh, first, but it also comes down to do you have access to, to fair pricing? And how quickly can you get that? And, and we can't forget that in the case of an SME, it might not be that they're shipping with the same regularity as a large company. Perhaps they have three, four shipments a year that are, are, are larger, but those three, four shipments can make or break their business. And therefore, it's important for them to have some degree of reliability uh, and accessibility because of the importance that shipment plays for
2: that business.
0: Turning back to Raul, what is the link between MSMEs and the developing countries' rise up the value chains?
2: When we talk about uh, diversification, of uh, production and uh, what is also called structural transformation of the economy of these uh, uh, countries. is a situation that it's reproduced in island uh, economies as well. It's uh, a situation that is reproduced in small vulnerable uh, economies and in least developed countries that you have a very little diversified economy. And when you are talking about diversifying the economy, then diversification can only come from the uh, SMEs because uh, the big multinational companies that are extracting these uh, resources from these countries, for them, it doesn't matter what the trade cost is, those commodities are in some cases so valuable that they are able to overcome those high trade costs, and still go into these countries and be able to um, make a profit from being in these uh, countries. But for the uh, small economies, uh, for the small and medium enterprises, they won't be able to export their product if the trade costs are not lowered, if they're not competitive in the different markets.
0: What kind of assistance and environment do the most vulnerable players in the world of trade, the small producers in the smaller countries, need to grow their
2: economies? The question that you have to ask yourself is, uh, do you wait for the uh, market to correct itself or do you actually step in and try to help these people who are suffering very much from this uh, situation. And I think that uh, the correct answer is that we need to step in. We need to use uh, the convening power of the WTO to uh, call attention to the situation, to call attention to the plight of these small countries, small uh, producers, and to try to come up with solutions that will correct uh, this uh, situation that as we said, was born out of success. It's important for them to also be able to continue to carry out their trading activity as they were doing and not to be priced out of being able to participate into international trade. So that's why I think we need to step in and do as much as possible to try to bring those costs down and provide long-term solutions to something that may in part be a conjunctural problem or maybe a problem that could sort itself out but what happens if it doesn't sometimes the market can work in unpredictable ways nobody saw that strong recovery coming so you know you never know when that situation is really going to correct itself we had supplementary shocks being added with the uh, ukraine conflict you may have that yeah some uh, problems that are uh, conjunctural, but there are some problems that are structural i mentioned the uh, the issue of uh, you know smaller countries receiving very little visits from chips that's not something that was just a situation due to the supply uh, chain crisis it's a situation that has been there for a long time and that has now been made even worse with the uh, global crisis thanks raul
0: With this episode, we hope we've called attention, even in a modest way, to the plight of smaller countries and producers in this global supply chain crisis. In the next episode, our season finale, a special guest helps us navigate through the ongoing poly crisis of inflation, the COVID-19 pandemic, geopolitical conflicts, and climate change, and marks out the pathway for more resilient supply chains.
5: With every passing day, I see the list of global challenges getting longer, while the willingness of countries to work together to tackle those challenges seems to be waning. See you next time on Let's Talk
0: Trade.